I think it was really from um, uh, these great hymns of the church that I developed much of my theology. Much of what I really believe about God and the church, I think for the most part I learned first from the hymns that we would sing long before I began to understand what preachers and teachers were saying. And for that reason, I really believe that these hymns ought to be taught to our children in Sunday school and available to them, the great hymns of history, because they are very much a part of their religious heritage. God's people have always sung their faith. It goes all the way back to the Exodus. And so I want you to read with me this great song that was sung by Moses and his um, 40 million choir. <laughs> Listen to this great song. Now, I don't think it was rap music, but it's kind of it was it's kind of uh, song in, in, in statement. It, it is a song, but it is a long statement. Read it with me. You need to read this. You got a Bible, Exodus chapter 15. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior, the Lord is his name, Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he is cast into the sea, and his choices and the choices of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep covers them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Thy right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of thine excellence, thou dost overthrow those who rise up against us. No, take a pencil and underline the word thee. They rise up against thee. Thou dost send forth thy burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. And at the blast of thy nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing water stood up like a heap. The deep were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword, my hand shall destroy them. Thou didst blow with thy wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? That is, stretch out thy right hand, the earth swallowed them. In thy loving kindness thou hast led the people whom thou hast redeemed. In thy strength, um, where am I? Thou hast guided them to thy holy habitation. In Sunday school, I get carried away, and MG's my reader. He, he keeps me up. I say, where am I? He tells me. Oh, would you be my keeper up here if I get lost? Thy, the peoples have heard, they, they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. 
Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed, the leaders of Moab trembling grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of thine arm they are motionless as stone until they pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over whom thou hast purchased. Thou wilt bring them and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance, thy place, O Lord, which thou, didst made for, thou hast made for thy dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots, his horsemen went into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea on them, but the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea. Now the women get into it. These revival meetings, the men sang a hymn and the women sang a stanza. The women are into it now. The sopranos take over. And Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the timbrel in her hand. All the women went out after her with timbrels and with dancing. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and rider he has hurled into the sea. What we got here is Israel's song. Now I need to say a couple of things about Israel's song. By the way, it was the, it's the first song ever written. Now if you want to astound your friends tomorrow at coffee, just ask them, you know what the oldest song in the world is? They won't know. You just tell them Exodus chapter 15. It's the oldest poem ever written. It was a song that was directed to the Lord. Now would you take that thought and underline it? It was a song that was directed to the Lord. The first song ever, that was ever sung was directed to the Lord. Now I need to say a couple of things about some convictions I have about church music. Hadn't, hadn't had a whole lot to say about church music, but the time is right, two convictions. I believe that every song sung in the sanctuary ought to be sung to the Lord. Now sometimes we sing to one another, you know, you remember in the fifth chapter of the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul is talking about the Spirit-filled life. And this is what he says. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with your heart, making melody with your heart to the Lord always. Making melody with your heart to the Lord always. Now the worst thing that can be said about a song sung on Sunday morning is not that it was off key. The worst thing that can be said about a song on Sunday morning is not that it was flat, you know, it sounded terrible. The worst thing that can be said about a song that's sung in the sanctuary was that it was sung to the wrong people, to the wrong audience. Now when we sing with our voices to one another, that's performance. When we sing with our heart to the Lord, that's praise. And every song that's sung in the sanctuary, in my humble and accurate opinion, ought to be sung with the heart to the Lord. Second conviction I have has to do with content. Now the interesting thing about this song is that it was sung entirely about Jehovah. 
It has nothing, it has nothing to say about them. It has everything to say about Him. And all this song is about is about the Lord. Now the word Lord occurs 12 times in these 18 verses that I read, the song of 18 verses. I read 21 of them, or 20, yeah, 21, but 18 really is the song. The word Lord occurs 12 times in those 18 verses, and you probably already counted them, but the pronouns he or him or you, singular, occur 33 times in this short song. For what he's doing here is he's just singing about the Lord. He's just singing about the Lord. Totally unlike some of our songs we sing, they recount our experiences instead of his mercies. They, <coughs> they tell more about human attainment than about divine atonement. Now, I'm not going to quarrel tonight about uh, you know, the songs we sing, what their content is. These people that you know, worry about rock, Christian rock music and get all upset, that, that's, a, that's a waste of time to get all worked up over that stuff. Christian rap music. I go downstairs on Sunday night to get me a little snack. Get me some rap music down there going, boy, I mean the walls are pounding. And, and I, I think it's pretty, um, you know, we're, you know there, there is a, 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 a group of people, a, a, a uh, clientele of people that that kind of music, only that kind of music will ever touch. And we're pretty inflexible if we, if we put that stuff out of the Christian, uh, you know, Christian music. And uh, if you got any, you, you read your Baptist Messenger, I know you don't read my column, I've already found that out. But if you read the Baptist Messenger, there's a lot been going on here lately about this Christian rock music, and everybody's taking a stand against it and all that stuff. What a waste of time. Um, I, I read somewhere that, that uh, in, 19, uh, in the 1940s, the Swiss, possessed 90% of the world's watch market. After the war, they owned 60% of the world's watch market. But at the turn of the last decade, 1980, they owned 10% of the world's watch market. And the employment in the watchmaking business in Switzerland went from 65,000 to 15,000 in, in a matter of a few years. You know what happened? They, they, they invented the quartz watch. Now the amazing thing about this was that the Swiss were the first to invent the quartz watch. But they didn't buy it. They didn't like it. And they rejected it. I mean, they knew about making watches, and watches are supposed to have gears and springs and go tick, tick. And because they rejected the quartz watch, they have lost, they have literally lost the market of the world on watches. You say, well, what does that have to do with this? Well, my point is, is that sometimes we in a church are so bound not to, to try new things and reach people in other ways than we've always done it, we miss the people. 
And so we're not going to have any of this rock music and we're not going to have any of this Christian rap. And what we, when, while we're saying that and what we're doing there is we're shutting the door to a vast number of people in the world. Now after saying that, I do need to say this. The reason why these great hymns have endured for centuries is because these great hymns have as their content, content Jehovah God. Now let me give you an example. Now, I want you to take a hymnal. Uh, <clears throat> I want you to turn to, to, to hymn number two. Okay? I'm not going to lead us in song. I just want you to read this. Hymn number two. First thing you need to do when you turn to hymn number two is look when it was written. The words were written in 1783 by a man who lived from 1783 to 1826. That's as old as... Um, Lewis here. <laughs> okay. Now look at, look at the words. Look at the words. Lord, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Early in the morning our song shall rise to thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Just look at the words of that great hymn. Now, now but, but let's turn to hymn number six. Hymn number six. Look at when this thing was written. I love this hymn. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. Look at the words of that hymn. Now look at hymn number eight. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing, our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to make us work us woe. His craft and power grave and armed with cruel hate. Our earth is not his equal. He goes on to talk about this mighty God. Verse, song number 27. I got to get you, I'm going to skip a couple. I can see you're really fired up about these hymns. I want you to look at this one. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and sing, and with us sing, Alleluia, Alleluia. Thou burning sun with golden beam. Now let me ask you this. We, we sing these courses in our church. Have you ever seen anything any more wonderful than that? I mean, any words, have you ever read any words more glorious than these? This is fantastic. Thou burning sun with golden beam, thou silver moon and with softer gleam, oh, praise Him, hallelujah. Thou rushing wind, thou art so strong. And on and on He goes. Now, the point I want to make is this, is that in the midst of what we sing, let's not forget the fact that there needs to be those songs that magnify God. That's Israel's song. What about the occasion of that song, okay? Let's look at verse 1 again of chapter 15. Y'all need to be out by 8? I mean, there are going to be lots of people in the early service next week because the Cowboys kick off at 11.30. I guarantee you it's going to be packed out in the early service. Verse 1. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord. 
Now, if you take a pencil and just circle that word then. Now, when was it they sang this song? Well, let's go back up to verse 30 of chapter 14. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord. When? When they saw their redemption. When they saw their deliverance. Now, what a difference it is in what we read in the earlier chapters. What we read in the other earlier chapters is they sighed for, for, uh, by reason of their bondage. They groaned and the Lord heard their groaning. They cried and the Lord heard their crying. And now their sighing gives place to singing. Their groans give way to praise. And what produced this change? The blood of the Lamb and the power of the Lord. And, 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 and they're singing and rejoicing because of their deliverance. And it should be that way. However, I submit to you that you ought to be able to sing as God's people when God is not intervening in your behalf. Now, it seems strange to me that these people would wait until they were delivered to sing praises to God. They've just been witness to the intervention of God's miracle, but it ought to be so that God's people could sing in the midst of suffering. You ever thought of that? Now I want you to take your Bible and turn to Psalm 137. Let me read you something there. Psalm 137. If you, have, if you have to be out by eight, we're not going to make it. Uh, I can tell, so we'll, I'll cut it short. By the rivers of Babylon, Psalm 137, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it we hung our harps. For there are captors, there are captors demanded of us songs, and our tormentors mirth sang. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And there have been Bible commentators who said that, that what they did was these Babylonians who, who came against Jerusalem in 586 B.C. and took these people off into exile, into a land where, uh, that was totally um, alien, uh, where God was totally alien. God was totally rejected. And, and, and these Babylonians would come around these people from Jerusalem and they'd say to them, ah, sing us one of those songs. How about when the saints go marching in or when the roll is called up yonder? Why don't you sing us one of those songs? This is what he said. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How can we do it? Well, we ought to be able to do that. If you're God's people, you ought to be able to sing in a foreign land. Or you ought to be able to sing in difficult circumstances if you're God's people. Isn't that, would you agree to that or not? This is yes, this is no. I mean, if Jesus can lead his disciples in singing a hymn on the night of his betrayal and arrest, we ought to be able to sing Lord's song in a strange land. 
And, and, and if Paul and, and, and Silas could sing in the midnight hour with their hands in stocks and their backs shredded with a, with a whip, we ought to be able to sing in, in our difficult times. And if Joseph Rinkert could lead, could write the words, now thank we all our God in the darkness of the 30 years war, we ought to be able to do it. And if the Negro slave could sing those great songs while they were in this bondage of slavery and under the servitude of slave owners, we ought to be able to sing Lord's song in a strange land because songs are not, shouldn't come from the outside. They ought to come from the inside. And while we're rejoicing over the fact that these people are let out of bondage and delivered through the Red Sea and they begin to sing because of it. Let me tell you something. There's something wrong with your faith if you can't sing when it's difficult. And I heard Chuck Swindoll tell about the fact that there was this lady in his church that had this little boy, spastic. The little boy couldn't talk at all. Couldn't understand him, but he could sing. And when he's singing, it is beautiful. Chuck Swindoll said one of his staff members got down to church early one morning. He's pastor of the Evangelical Free Church out in Fullerton. And this lady who had this little, boy, this little child, spastic, had forgotten to set her watch back. It was one of those, it was a time change, and she got there an hour early. So she just went to, the, to her room with, where the little boy went to this special education room there in Sunday school. The staff member said he's, he's walking down the hall. You hear this woman singing, and this little boy was singing. This is spastic. You know what they were singing? God is so good. He said, I walk along down there, walk down that hall. I just thought to myself, now if that poor woman and a little spastic boy could sing about the goodness of God when all they had to go through in the, in the prospects and the potential of that boy's life, why couldn't I sing that song in a strange land? Now the occasion of songs is not when it's going good. You ought to be able to sing when it's not so good. What is the theme of this song? It's a song of redemption. Now there are two great elements in redemption. There are two parts to redemption. Redemption is by purchase and by power. So they sing about the power of the Lord and of His purchase. And they sing, what they sing, now watch this carefully, is not what, is, is, what they sing is what the Lord had done. Are you with me? I messed that one up, so I'll go back and do it again. What they sing is what the Lord had done. That is, what the Lord had done, not necessarily for them, but for what the Lord had done, period. Their song was not on the basis of what the Lord had done for them. They didn't talk about that. You read this over again. Read it over and over again. I challenge you to find where they talk about what He's done for them. They don't. They talk about what He did, period. For the theme of their, their song was that they began to magnify the Lord because in overflowing, overthrowing the strength of Egypt, He had glorified Himself. Now watch this carefully. God is glorious not because of what He does for you. God is glorious for what He is in Himself. Now there's a difference between thanksgiving and praise. 
Thanksgiving is our gratitude to God for what He does for us. Praise is our adoration because of who and what God is. That's what's going on in this song. Now watch this carefully. If you and I were writing this song, we'd talk about what God has done for us. And if God, there went my, there went my watch. Do you want me to bend down and pick it up? If I don't, I may not know what time it is later on. But there'll be somebody that will remind me. I tell you. When they write, when we, if we were writing this song, we'd talk about what God has done on our behalf. And the reason why, and, and God is just awesome and wonderful when He's doing something in our behalf. Hey, let me tell you, are you hearing this? God is awesome and wonderful if He never does anything in your behalf. He's awesome and glorious and wonderful, period. And God is not great because He intervenes in our behalf. God is great because of who He is. Now look at verses 6 and 7 again. Thy right hand is majestic in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of thine excellence, thou didst overthrow those who, they didn't even say who rise up against us, but who rise up against thee. Thou didst send them forth burning in burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. Now, I want you to get this, please. Praise or joy is the overflowing of a heart which is occupied with the person of God. And not necessarily the work of God in our behalf. And when our heart is filled with joy and praise because of the person of God, then there is continual praise. Because when praise is not based upon external circumstances, whether it's good or bad, when praise is not on the basis of what, how things are going with me, but on the basis of who God is, there is continual praise because He never changes. So you see, the first thing we have to do is we have to get God in perspective. Uh, Ola uh, Tozier was right when he said that the greatest thing about any man is what he in him, his mind thinks about God. The greatest thing about any person is not, says Tozier, what he does or says. The greatest thing about any person is what he in himself considers God to be. A little boy came home from Sunday school one Sunday and he, he was sitting around the table with his parents and he said to his mother, he said, Mother, why don't we call God by His name? And she said, well, what do you mean? We, we do. He said, no, we don't. He said, this teacher said that, you know, that we're to pray our Father in, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He said, we never, we never call Him hallowed. <laughs> why, why don't we call Him hallowed? Well, good question. Now what, what Jesus is doing in, setting, in, in teaching us that prayer is this, that before we do anything else, we have to get God in proper perspective in our minds. We have to understand that God is hallowed, hallowed. And He's awesome and majestic. And if we can't 
come to that belief or that conviction, then we got problems later on. Now the Hebrews were very careful about using the name Yahweh. In fact, they thought to use that name, to speak that name, was to invite uh, problems, you know. And, and all the other people could talk about their gods and use His name all they wanted to. But, the, but, but, but to the Hebrew, to say the name God, Yahweh, was to, was to release the power of a thousand thunderstorms. So they never even said the name Yahweh except once a year. And the high priest said that one time. Because to them, this God was holy and awesome. And to call His name was to be sacrilegious. He was so revered and feared. And I tell you, that's the tent pole. What you think about God, how you perceive Him to be. Now these guys came out of Egypt and they had a lot of awesome stuff to talk about. Man, you should have seen those guys dealing with those frogs and boils and whatever, lice. They had a lot to talk about, but what they sang about was that what God was in Himself. Warrior, King, awesome. And when you get that done, then you're ready to move from the, with regard to the implications of that. Now what's the implications of it? The implication of it is this, notice this. He is my strength and song. Now it's not by accident that those two words go together, but watch this carefully. When you understand what God is like, you can sing whatever circumstances. And when you understand what God is like, then you can, you, you feel invincible, don't you? When you understand how awesome is our God and that He is with us and, 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 and for us and within us, then why not feel invincible? And He has become my salvation. Now there are two things that we need to say about that word. First of all, True faith appropriates God's mercy in a personal as a personal possession. He said, He is my strength and my salvation, my God. He's mine, personally. And the second thing we say about it is that every single act of mercy should reveal God more clearly as my strength. Every, you know, we have enough reason tonight to, 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 to never be afraid again after all we've seen God do. Now I said before, what would I say that, that the parting of the Red Sea was comparable to what? New Testament what? Uh, appreciate it? <laughs> comparable? You didn't get that in your notes? It was comparable to the resurrection. Now when these people talked about this awesome and mighty God, they, they didn't have the resurrection to look at. But well, we do. We do. Now every act of mercy on our behalf ought to convince us that God is our strength. And we have seen enough evidence of God in our life. We should never be afraid of anything again. No circumstance ought to ever get us down. The second implication, not only is He strength, salvation, strength, song, and salvation. He is my guide. Look at verse 13. It's the picture of gentle leading. It's the idea of a shepherd in his flock. 
In thy strength with strong hand he gently leads us. Now where does he lead us? He leads us, he says, look at verse 13. In thy strength thou hast guided them to thy holy habitation. Now it seems strange to me that they're standing out here in the middle of the wilderness and he talks about his, the holy habitation. You know what the holy habitation is? Okay, would you like to know? That holy habitation is a reference to that intimacy and fellowship with God where God is in His place. You know what he's saying? He's saying like a shepherd, He leads us to an intimate walk with Him. It's like going home with Him. Now, take your New Testament. My watch is on the floor. Five minutes. I want you to turn to the book of Ephesians, will you? The book of Ephesians. One thing I like about Sunday night, we're so formal. Everything is, everything is formal. I want you to read with me Ephesians chapter 1. Oh, man, you've got to get this. Look at this. Verse 17 of chapter 1. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe these are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might. Now watch this. When he brought, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in His holy habitation in heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the age to come. And He put all things in subjection unto His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all and in all. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He shifts to us now. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, as the Spirit is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, you, we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, etc. But God being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, transgressions made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him look at this and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus he's not talking about what was going to happen in the future he's talking about what is present now he's saying you he lifted us up in Christ to the holy habitation and in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus he's saying that when he saved us when he redeemed us he gave us his heavenly place And the ultimate place he leads us, look at verse, um, in, in, in back, to, back to Exodus chapter 15. The ultimate, the ultimate place is verse 15, 17. Thou wilt bring them and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance. 
Now, are you with me? He's saying when you get God in the place and understand what He's like, and when you experience His redemption, the implication of that redemption is He becomes your strength and song, He becomes your salvation, and He leads you into this heavenly place in Christ Jesus, and the ultimate is His heavenly home. Somebody say, when I get to heaven, I'm going to look around and say, this looks familiar. I've been living here all my life. I've been living in this place since I got saved. Now, I've got a warning for you. Number one, you can lose your song. You can lose your song. How do we lose our song? We don't sit down deliberately to lose it. In fact, we sit down to live a life of opportunity and success. We scheme. We dream of a happy life. You don't sit down and plan to live miserably. It just happens sometimes. You can lose your song. Have any of you lost your song? Second warning, you can misdirect your trust. And sometimes you can put your trust in others or in yourself and it's misdirected. And you can make him trustworthy, watch this, on the condition that he does what you expect him to do. Now, I need to clarify what I just said. Sometimes we have this expectation of the way God will do things in our life, and we make him trustworthy on the basis of whether he does that or not. That's misdirected trust. Regardless of what God does in your life and mine, you can still trust Him. Are you listening? You can trust Him even when it looks like you shouldn't. And so the Hebrew children were told, we're going to burn you guys like a piece of meat if you don't bow down to the pagan God. And the Hebrew children said, our God is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. But even if He doesn't, we're still going to trust Him. That's faith directed in the right place. Maybe the reason why you've lost your song is because you have these preconceived ideas about how God is going to act in your life and it hasn't happened that way. You just need to trust Him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for this wonderful lesson, this great song, this hymn that exalts Your awesome nature and character and magnifies Your name. And I pray, Father, that we'll never lose that song. Because I ask it in Christ's name for His sake. There are, there's an invitation tonight. This invitation is for you to give your heart to Christ. Or maybe you need to join fellowship of believers or to rededicate yourself to Him. Would you like to be saved tonight? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could sing the Lord's song like the angels in heaven? You get saved here.
You can do that tonight if you'll trust the Lord Jesus. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.